The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Andana Diani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. And this is our last episode of this season. When we decided to create this podcast, it was really in part a result of our curiosity about our heroes and the opportunity to learn about their stories. But it was mostly about the privilege of being able to share their journeys to hopefully inspire activism in others. We have both needed validation and encouragement when pursuing our passion, and we were hoping to be that resource for many others waiting to get off the sidelines. What we did not anticipate was the incredible outpouring of love and support from this community. We have been so inspired by your stories of activism and your suggestions of incredible people we should highlight in the future. We still have so many big dreams for this community and hope to continue to be a resource for all dissenters everywhere. And so, what better way to honor the dissenters we've featured this season and the original dissenter, the one and only Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, than to close this podcast with a very candid and incredibly enlightening conversation with Hillary Clinton. I mean, if that is not a bucket list experience, I don't know what is. (laughs) We know you all know her story. So here is a very brief introduction. Hillary Diane Rodham Clinton is an attorney, diplomat, author, and public servant who served as the 67th United States Secretary of State, as United States Senator from New York, and the First Lady of the United States. She became the first woman to be nominated for President of the United States by a major political party when she won the Democratic Party nomination in 2016 and the first woman to win the popular vote in an American presidential election. Raised in the Chicago suburb of Park Ridge, Hillary graduated from Wellesley College and received her law degree from Yale Law School, where she met future President Bill Clinton. They married in Arkansas, and she had an incredible career as an attorney and was listed twice by the National Law Journal as one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America and was the first lady of Arkansas when her husband became governor. She spent her entire life in public service fighting for gender equality, health care reform, equal rights, and child care. She's a total hero to both of us and to women all around the world. And it was the greatest privilege of our lives to have this opportunity. I had the great privilege of working on Hillary's presidential campaign and met so many inspiring, tenacious, bright women in her tribe. The Hillary I got to see is warm and funny and maybe the smartest woman I've ever met. And now it is our honor to introduce you to the amazing dissenter, the one and only, I literally can't believe I'm saying this, Secretary Hillary Clinton, the Shiro. Hi. How are you all? Oh, so great. We're so excited to see you. How are you? You know, It's like every day is Groundhog Day, obviously, but I'm (laughs) uh, doing well. Everybody, knock on wood, is healthy. I'm so glad you guys started this podcast, and I love the name. It's fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. you. It was, (laughs) obviously, it was uh, dedicated to RBG. And congratulations on yours. Yes. That's so fantastic. My podcast just started today. Yeah. We were listening this morning. I I just finished an episode with Kamala Harris before joining you for your podcast. So it's like 
you know, let's celebrate all these fabulous women. Okay, Secretary Clinton, we cannot overstate how thrilled and honored we are to have this time with you. You have modeled so much of what it means to be an advocate, activist, and dissenter, and we could not imagine a more impactful way to close this podcast season than by sharing your reflections on dissent and democracy. When we began this journey to interview our heroes, we realized we had an opportunity to inspire compassion, civic engagement, participation in community, the questioning of authority, and a responsibility to challenge disinformation and our own prejudices. We had so many big dreams for this little podcast, and just sitting here with you is beyond anything we ever could have imagined. So we usually love to start at the beginning and to hear about the lives and your upbringing. We know that your life story has been so widely covered. So we just want to ask a few questions before diving into the subject of this episode, which may not be one that one would expect. (laughs) Given the title of this podcast and the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we named it after, we wanted to close the season discussing the importance of dissent, the role it plays in democracy, the challenge our country is facing today as dissent is being silenced, and what this means against a backdrop of a rise of fascism and nationalism here and around the world. And ultimately, conclude with your thoughts on whether America can actually call itself the leader of the free world anymore. We could not think of anyone with more experience and expertise on the subject and also more hope and optimism about democracy than you. So if you don't mind, we would love to dive in. Go right ahead. Okay. You grew up in an all-white Republican conservative suburb. Your father was a staunch Republican and your mother was a Democrat. She had quite a difficult upbringing, which impacted many of your beliefs about justice and civil rights. What was your mother's influence on shaping your ideals? Well, you're absolutely right that my my family was where I like to say the gender gap in politics started because <laughs> my father was from a family of Republicans. The worst thing I could say when I was a little girl and I'd get frustrated or angry to all of his side of the family, I would say, well, I'm going to grow up and marry a Democrat. <laughs> um, so my father was, um, you know, a man of his time, a man of the Great Depression, a man of World War II. He'd been a chief petty officer in the Navy. He was a small businessman. So he had a lot of what I think of as, you know, the traditional Republican views, but he also believed in public education and public parks and, you know, taking care of people. So he was more old fashioned than what we see, sadly, in the Republican Party today. Whereas my mom, because she'd had a really difficult childhood and basically was abandoned by her parents and then by her paternal grandparents, was out on her own working as a housekeeper babysitter when she was the age of 13. Uh, So she understood that life wasn't fair and that, you know, sometimes you really had to struggle to keep going. And so she was somebody who was always rooting for the underdog, um, was trying to make sure that people were taken care of and that I had a sense of responsibility and duty toward uh, those who I might be able to help in some way. So she was adamantly in favor of education. And Mm -hmm. I give both her and my father credit. They made no difference between me and my brothers. You know, my dad was just as determined that I was going to do 
well in education. It was a very good combination, it turns out for me, because Mm -hmm. I feel like I got both sides of uh, a a worldview that I could then make my own. That's incredible. Yeah. In 1962, your childhood minister, Doug Jones, took you and your church group to hear Martin Luther King Jr. speak in Chicago. And you'd spoken about the influence hearing the civil rights leaders speak had on your commitment to service and your sense of country. What was it like growing up during the King civil rights movement, this, you know, the Vietnam War and protests around the country and the assassination of, of MLK and JFK? And how did this era really inform your ideals around the importance of dissent? It's a great question because I give a lot of credit to my youth minister, uh, really to my upbringing in the church, because again, it was a very large Methodist church, which was, as far as I recall, totally all white in my all white (laughs) suburb. But this new young youth minister showed up and he wanted to really expand our understanding of the world, get us out of our comfort zone. And He took us to downtown Chicago churches where we sat in church basements talking to brown and black kids about what their lives were like. And he, you know, introduced us to art. He really brought a a view of the world that was far beyond anything that I'd ever experienced. And when he learned about Dr. King coming to Chicago, he asked if we in his youth class wanted to go. And many of us said yes, but then not every parent would agree to let their kid go because this was still kind of new. And, you know, we were in the 60s. It was uh, before President Kennedy's assassination, but there was a lot of questioning about what Dr. King was doing. So, I remember we went in the church van, we went to downtown Chicago, and I heard Dr. King speak. And that evening, he gave a sermon uh, that was one of his famous sermons called Staying Awake During the Revolution. And it was basically, you know, calling to people like me and my family and the kids that I grew up with and all the community that I was part of, hey, you know, there's a revolution going on and it's, it's a long overdue revolution. It's a revolution for justice and equality. It's to try to live up to our founding principles and values. So I was just taken by what I heard that night. And I remember we stood in line to uh, go up to the front of the orchestra hall and have a chance to shake hands with Dr. King, which I did. And I was just, you know, really almost overwhelmed by the experience because it was so different. I mean, you'd see things on TV, but that didn't necessarily make it real. And here was this man who carried himself with such dignity and strength and gravitas and had just told us there is a revolution and you have to decide, are you going to be part of it or not? And it's a revolution that will be on the side of justice and truth and equality. So uh, that had a had a big impact on me. It's crazy. The parallels from everything you're saying to what's happening today is crazy to hear. Well, you go through the 60s and you see those parallels. I mean, you you yeah. mentioned the assassination of Dr. King uh, in 68 and then the assassination yeah. of Senator Kennedy and then, you know, riots the and riots. frustration and yeah. anger and outrage in the streets. And, you know, I think a lot about what I lived through and saw happening in the 60s we had moments of good leadership. Like I remember seeing, you know, Lyndon Johnson give the 
you know, the Voting Rights Act speech. Um, mm-hmm. I know what he said when he signed the Civil Rights Act, which he knew was going to be a big political problem for the Democratic Party, but did it because it was right. There are a lot of parallels. And dissenting is very often the right thing to do, but it often carries a cost. And that, I think, was one of the early lessons that uh, I learned during those years. Okay, well, we want to transition to your time as Secretary of State Mm -hmm. and what you learned visiting 122 countries facing several huge crises, negotiations, and threats to national security. During this time, what role did the United States play as the purveyor of this great American experiment of democracy? Are there any examples that you can share about how we as a country encouraged or helped instill democracy and and what it meant to its citizens? It's a great question, Deborah, because when then-President-elect Obama asked me to be Secretary of State, as you remember, we were in the midst of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. We're we're back in one right now for some of the same reasons of poor decision-making and, and, and bad leadership. Yep. Um, but he said to me, you know, look, we have an economic crisis and we've lost our, our leadership position in the world. He said, I, I've got to focus on the economy. I want you to try to rebuild relationships and reestablish our position um, as Secretary of State. And that's exactly what I tried to do. And I, I went to a lot of countries that were just on the fence trying to decide, well, you know, is the United States going to care about us? Or are you only caring about what happened, the terrible attack you suffered on 9-11 and right. your you know, response to that in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, where you don't really seem to be paying attention to the rest of the world? So my job was in large measure to once again reassert American leadership in concert with American values. And it was something that I know made a difference because you could see people beginning once again to you know, trust the United States, trust our word, work with us, really respect President Obama, have a, have a sense that you know, we're, not, we're not gonna be able to solve all the problems as the United States, but no big problem can be solved without us. And therefore working wow. with a lot of different countries, we dealt with some really tough issues, you know, trying to put a lid on uh, Iran's nuclear weapons program was a very complicated matter, trying to get the world together around climate change, which I started and John Kerry continued. And we ended up with the Paris Climate Accord because it wasn't perfect, but if everybody's not working together, nothing uh, of lasting import will happen working to uh, come up with arms control agreements with Russia. I mean, there was so Mm -hmm. much that we really focused on to try to make it clear that the United States was leading on behalf of freedom and democracy. And I'll tell you a quick story. So late one night when uh, I was Secretary of State, I got a call from uh, my team in the State Department telling me that a Chinese dissident, a blind Chinese dissident, had escaped from house arrest in China and was making his way toward the American embassy in Beijing. And the people who were helping him escape had contacted officials in our embassy to say, we we want him to seek asylum. We want him to be given protection in the American embassy. So my team was calling me and it was an incredibly complicated, fraught decision 
there were people who said, you know, you're, you're about to go to China, because I was in a few days. I was heading for our annual um, meeting on a lot of different important issues. So if you give the go-ahead to take this uh, dissident in, mm-hmm. it's going to be really messy and, and, mm-hmm. and really blow up our relationship. This went on and on for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, people weighing in. And, you know, finally I said, look, I've heard all the arguments. I understand everything you're saying. But if we don't stand for freedom, if we don't stand as a place that somebody who himself was advocating for freedom in his country can feel will take him in and protect him, what 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 else is you know are we standing for? What do you mean? I mean we've oh, got to do this. So good. Amen. And we did, Amen. and it did cause a lot of consternation, and we did have to really work it through, and it was you know very challenging. But I never regretted making the decision. And I remember when we were in the middle of these really fraught discussions with the Chinese government because we had him in the embassy, but when he had escaped from his house, he had broken his foot and he, and we, you know, we couldn't, we didn't have hospital facilities in the embassy. We had to negotiate for him to be given, you know, safe passage to a hospital to get his, you know, his foot treated and some other injuries that he'd had. And we were, you know, working to get him out and get his wife out and get his children out. And I remember one of the diplomats, one of our American diplomats said, well, you know, this is so (laughs) difficult and, you know, the Chinese are so angry. Do you ever regret it? I said, no, I will never regret that decision because, you know, we have to keep standing up for dissidents. Uh, We have to keep protecting the right to dissent because it is such a fundamental human right. And so, you know, when, when the United States is active on behalf of human rights, it makes a difference. People pay attention. I remember, you know, being told that, that Uganda was going to pass a law mandating the death penalty for homosexuality. Right. And uh, I yeah, I remember the that. president of Uganda. I called him up. I said, you know, President Museveni, you cannot do this. This is wrong. And, you know, you have to, if you are in the government of the United States, stand for what are the real core values of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which, by the way, was largely negotiated by Eleanor Roosevelt. So it all comes full circle if we pay attention to uh, our better angels. That's such an insane story. Oh my God! There's a lot of them. I, will, I, <laughs> I can't I, imagine. I, I want to like. Ask that's you. that's exactly what I was just thinking. I was like, that was just one night. Yeah, <laughs> that was one night, and 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 there were wars, and there were. I mean, it's can't just even to be able to sort of stay poised and focused and sure-footed during all of that. It certainly is a skill set that I don't have. So thank God you were there. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to hear from our new partner, Noom. With Noom, you pick the goals that are right for you. Having more stamina to keep up with your busy life, being more in tune with your body's needs, practicing better self-care and feeling confident. Noom personalizes a program to help your goals become reality. Noom is based in psychology, so it teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools to break the bad habits and replace them with better ones. Noom is based on a cognitive behavioral approach and uses personalized courses to help you reach your specific goals. They're the behavior change experts, but they meet you on your level 
so you can feel good about your choices and have an improved sense of self-worth as well as less stress and anxiety. One of my favorite things about Noom is that they only ask you to commit to 10 minutes a day for yourself. And Noom is forgiving because we're all human. If you go off track, there's no shaming. Just tips to help you get back on track tomorrow. Noom is here to help build a healthier, more sustainable lifestyle. You're assigned a goal specialist and matched up with a community of Noomers. So there's always support and people going through the same thing you are. There's a science to getting healthier. It's called Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com slash dissenters. That's Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash dissenters. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash dissenters to start your trial today. That's Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash dissenters. Now back to the show. I just want to introduce kind of Deborah's next question, which is, you know, as we think about dissent, it's obviously not lost on us that the right to protest is absolutely essential to democracy, that in democratic countries all around the world, people protest all the time, and it's a very normal occurrence. America emerged from protests against colonial rule and has resulted, I think, in some of the most important advances in our entire history. And I think when we talk about protests, it's an opportunity for us to elevate what isn't working, right? It's us signaling, hey, this needs to be repaired. And at the same time, it creates a vision for something better. It actually gives us something to look forward to and presents an opportunity to move this country forward. And when you think about dissent and how it's played a role in democracy forever, that's kind of what it's done. It's it's helped shown voters, this isn't working, this candidate isn't right for you, or this policy really needs change. And it's just so fascinating to think about how how the world has viewed dissent so differently recently. Yeah. Right. You know, people forget, and, and I'm glad you put it into the historical context. You know, dissent is as American as apple pie. I mean, it's crazy. You, you go back and we're a sort of dissenting people. Um, <laughs> you know, we stand yeah. up, we want to be heard. We have our opinions. Uh, obviously, having the right to protest peacefully because that is an important yes. you know element and i think about dr king or i think about losing john yeah. lewis and yeah. you know people willing to not only dissent and protest but to model what it is they were seeking yes. on our behalf the kind yes. of you know civility and discourse uh, that is absolutely necessary so now you know we have a have a president and unfortunately an administration in Washington that either fears or dislikes or wants to manipulate uh, the right to dissent and yep. wants to turn peaceful protests into, you know, threats that uh, deserve to be uh, met with, you know, tear gas and batons and other kinds of aggressive uh, behaviors. And it is really important, I don't care where you land on the political spectrum, that we support uh, the right to demonstrate and to protest peacefully because it is part of the American right to dissent. Yes. Just this past May, between 15 and 26 million people have participated in protests across 550 cities after the murders of George Floyd on May 25th and Breonna mm -hmm. Taylor on May 13th, both black, unarmed, and killed by police officers. 
The Associated Press reported that the number of people arrested nationwide on burglary and looting charges was in the hundreds, Mm -hmm. which pales in comparison to the millions of peaceful protesters. And yet, in many recent polls, fewer and fewer Americans think people's freedom to peacefully protest is very important for the country. It feels like more and more governments around the world treat protest as a threat something that needs to be controlled. Technology is being used to monitor and suppress dissent. Trump said into a microphone at a rally that he wanted to punch a protester in the face. Mm -hmm. What is the significance of the characterization of protesters as the villains of America or the vocal minority who do not reflect the values of Americans, this growing incitement of us versus them, especially as you think back on the term vocal minority during Nixon and now Mm -hmm. watching how it's used now as this rallying cry. Well, thanks for putting it into context because you're absolutely right. I mean, millions of Americans and predominantly young, but not only young Americans, have been in the streets protesting racial injustice, protesting everything from climate change to, uh, you know, individual local issues, right? Yeah. Yep. And it's a sign of the health of our society and our political system that people do take to the streets. But because it is powerful, the powers on the other side who are defenders of the status quo and very clearly against dissent and against any kind of um, systemic change, whether it be mm-hmm. uh, racial, climate, health, whatever, They want to stifle it. And when they couldn't stifle it, they want to mischaracterize it. And that's sadly where the press too often, unfortunately, plays a role. Because, you know, watching hours of peaceful protests is not as exciting uh, or click worthy as watching five minutes of vandalism. And so over and over that vandalism. That's right. Totally out of context. It doesn't reflect anything other than, you know, a bunch of people who took advantage of a situation who were engaged in, you know, criminal behavior, lawlessness. But that is not at all what the protests were aimed at trying to uh, represent. But the press, sadly, creates that. And then the echo chamber of social media puts it on repeat over and over again. And it goes into people's Facebook feeds and Twitter accounts and Instagram. And all of a sudden, you know, people start to say, well, you know, I I, I didn't like what happened to George Floyd. That was wrong. And I don't understand what happened to Breonna Taylor, but I don't like what I'm seeing, you know? So that's all intended to muddy the waters. And then to have authoritarian personalities like Trump and Barr and others, you know, say, well, we have to protect you from these protesters. So we have to tear gas them. We have to send in the military and all the rest. And what's really most important about all of this is to remember that stifling dissent, mischaracterizing peaceful protest is the mark of authoritarian leaders. And We've seen it all over the world. We're watching it happen in Belarus right now where the election was rigged. We know it was. Lukashenko, you know, is not a legitimate leader any longer. And the people have been pouring out into the streets by the hundreds of thousands and Minsk and elsewhere. 
and they're they're being arrested and they're being beaten and because that's what an authoritarian government yes. does when people dare to dissent. I think that we're actually going to, the second half of this interview is really talking about fascism and the rise of authoritarian rule around the world because it's, it's incredibly alarming. Mm-hmm. You just touched on that moment that I think is so ingrained in, in all of our memories, you know, when, and obviously because of all the different roles you've had and how much you've dedicated your life to protecting civil rights, I think we also just wanted to hear your personal just experience as you as you watched, you know, the the riot police and the troops violently and without provocation, you know, beat and release tear gas and pepper spray onto peaceful protesters that were just dissenting social injustice, all to clear an area around St. John's Episcopal Church across Lafayette Park for the president to pose for a photo op with a Bible. And as horrible as that was, but that he was also joined not only by the press secretary and the chief of staff and the national security advisor, but also by those historically independent, like the secretary of defense and the attorney general. And then also what went through your mind when you saw the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff in battle fatigue, walking through town with the president. I just like picture you and I'm like, oh my God, her brain's exploding. Like, how do you, how do you process this? Well, you don't. I mean, you know, you, you can't accept it. It is so completely out of character for what our government is supposed to represent and the roles that people like the Secretary of Defense and the uh, Chair of the Joint Chiefs are supposed to have, Mm -hmm. along with uh, the Attorney General, who's supposed to be the lawyer for the people, not for the president. When I saw that, you know, I thought, you know, when I was Secretary of State, I did nothing political. I did not go to the Democratic Convention. I did not give a single speech that was in any way political. And the tradition had been that the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and the Treasury Secretary were totally out of domestic politics. That's how it should have been, and that's how we did it in the Obama administration. So this was very personal to me because when I saw that, it was horrifying and a very serious breach of the expectations of those positions. Now, I think given the outrage that was forthcoming and particularly from the military, you saw yeah. the defense secretary and the chair of the joint chiefs, you know, retreating from that position and basically you know, admitting uh, yes. that they should not have been where they were. But it just shows you the power of a president, any president, to misuse the office. Yes. Because he is the top of the chain of command. Yes. Technically, the defense secretary and the joint chiefs and everyone else in that military chain end up reporting to the president. And we have laws against what they did. There's a law from the late 19th century the U.S. military cannot be used for policing efforts. They violate every norm, every law, every rule that you can imagine. And that's one of the great dangers that Trump poses because for whatever combination of reasons, and I struggle to understand it, people give in to him. Right. They yeah. give in, they give in, until finally they get so sick of it and so sick of themselves that they leave, but then a new crew comes in and they give into it and give into it. And 
allow him to run roughshod over our institutions and the rule of law. And sadly, he now has such a chief enabler with the attorney general who has given a series of speeches that are truly terrifying. Terrifying. People people make fun of those who say, oh my gosh, it's, you know, these guys want to have the handmaid's tale in real life. You go back and look at Barr's speeches, his recent speech at a Catholic. uh, Yes, yes, absolutely. He got some award, his speech at the Federalist Society, his speech at Notre Dame. And he is, you know, he is telling us very clearly what he believes and why he is enabling Trump because he is against the cultural changes that have occurred in the last decades, you know, changes that have empowered women, changes Mm -hmm. that have empowered LGBTQ community, changes that have really made it clear that freedom of religion is for everybody. I know. And and so you you saw that scene in Lafayette Park and how disgraceful a misuse of power it was. Uh, There was a little pulling back, but make no mistake, the people closest to Trump understand that he is their avatar. He is the person who will move the right-wing agenda forward. And that right-wing agenda is very much in line with authoritarianism, uh, with a return to a prior time when Mm -hmm. people like us were not so uppity and so, (laughs) you know, independent. Uh, So this is is a, a really existential struggle. And that's why this upcoming election is critically important. Still speaking about that day, this question I really... I really wanted you to answer for me. As someone whose faith has been such an integral part of your life, how did you feel seeing the president weaponize religion, using the Bible in front of the church, invoking the will of God to his audience, all while trampling over the separation of church and state? I mean, we remember hearing Bishop Marion Budd of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington say immediately after, quote, Let me be clear, the president just used a Bible, the most sacred text of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and one of the churches of my diocese without permission as a backdrop for a message antithetical to the teachings of Jesus and everything that our churches stand for. In the first episode of your podcast, You and Me, you discuss how integral justice and inclusion are to faith. Why do you think this administration, despite how it defies so many Judeo-Christian values, is still so revered by the right and religious groups? Because I think they see him as their channel to power and change that they have been long seeking. You know, the right wing of politics is in close cooperative effort with the right wing of religion. And it yes. doesn't matter what faith, there are right wingers in every faith. Every right. single faith. There are yep. fundamentalists in every faith. There Absolutely. are the turn the clock back people in every yes. faith. And the leaders have no illusion about who Trump is. They understand completely. And in fact, one leading evangelical leader when confronted uh, by uh, a reporter who said, how, how can you support this man who clearly is, is not acting as though he uh, is religious, is spiritual, he doesn't, you know, in any way follow a Christian lifestyle? And this evangelical leader said, 
you don't have to be a Christian to defend Christianity. And oh by that, God. he means to turn the clock back, to turn the clock back on abortion, on gay rights, to install uh, power and authority in the establishment. Uh, this, is, this is almost classic. And so they have no illusion about this guy and the kind but of like life hypocrisy. The hypocrisy is so stunning. He doesn't even know a single verse of the Bible. He's been asked several times. Oh, That's I right. Them all. I mean, he's just a fraud. He's a fraud in religion, just like he's a fraud in you know business and politics. But he's doing their work. But he's also like a horrible role model and violates so many of the commandments. So it's like, yes, he might help you with abortion and LGBTQ rights, but like he's teaching your kids that adultery is okay, that cheating is okay. He's been married three okay. times, has children like, from three different women. He's got- This is what? a culture war. This is a culture war. This is, even. you know, we're still fighting the culture wars of the 1960s. And this is a culture war where these folks, they believe that they can control their family, control their children, teach their children the way they want them to believe and live. And he's going to fix the society and the politics so that these bigger issues are once and for all eliminated. And so watch what's happening in this Supreme Court yeah, nomination. You know, someone who very clearly sides in her writing and in her speaking and in her decision making with a very conservative view of a lot of the issues that have been most uh, controversial uh, in the. She's in more our right than Scalia. So yeah, they they know exactly who he is. They know what kind of a guy he is, and they they think you know as long as he's there, he's going to uh, do our bidding because he wants our votes and he can't win without us. And so we've got a pretty good deal going here. So Madeleine Albright, the you know another former Secretary of State, in her book Fascism: A Warning, warned of the erosion of liberal democracy here and around the world, um, and also clearly warned of the rise of a global fascist threat that the world is getting closer every day to a true political crisis. What do you think are the most critical components of fascism? And why do you think fascism and nationalism are on the rise around the world? I know you said we should be very concerned. We should be very concerned. And I thought Madeline did a great service in writing uh, her book because too often Americans think, well, it can't happen here. Yeah, exactly. And then we elect somebody like Donald Trump and we see what he's doing to undermine our basic institutions and our values and the rule of law. And if you read Madeline's book, you see how most authoritarian leaders uh, that we think of, like Mussolini or Hitler, were elected first. You know, they, they actually yeah. won yes. power through election. Now, they did things like have thugs in the street, uh, like sadly we see with Trump supporters with their military-style weapons in the street. Right. But you look at Mussolini, you look at Hitler, they used intimidation, but they also, you know, used political uh, deal-making to obtain power in the first place. And then, of course, had no intention of ever giving it up. And I think what Madeline is trying to, you know, tell us, really teach us, because she lived through first you know, the Nazis, where she and her family had right. to flee from Czechoslovakia. Then they returned after the war, and then they had to flee the communists when the Soviets took over their country. So she has seen this in a very real, up-close way. And she's warning us that there are little steps 
along the path that you have to be really careful about. One of the earliest signs was the effort by Trump on literally the day of his inauguration to lie to the American people about the size of the crowd. Now, some people might think, you know, that's goofy, that's silly. No, that's a clear signal. He's trying to distort and pervert reality to benefit himself. He's trying to create an environment in which people end up believing the big lie, you know, and the big doubting lie themselves. Technique that yeah. you know that the Soviet communists um, were so good at using active measures and propaganda, which they used against me in the 2016 election, which they're mm-hmm. you know trying to use now against Biden. So I think what Madeline is saying very clearly is take all these steps seriously. And another author expert, Tim Snyder, the professor at Yale, who wrote a little book called On Tyranny. He writes about all of these these steps along the way. So it's the lying. It's the, quote, alternative facts, you know, an unknown phenomenon before, you know, Kellyanne Conway uh, asserted it about, you know, forcing institutions to do what you expect, just lying repeatedly to the American public about anything and everything, you know, installing cronies, pardoning you know, criminal aid so that they don't spill the beans on you. I mean, you go through what Trump has done and it's right out of the classic tyrant slash authoritarian fascist playbook. And it's really aiming at nationalism combined with cronyism, combined with personal advantage, particularly financially. Right. And that just is the classic description of what uh, authoritarians uh, end up doing. Secretary Albright called 45 the most undemocratic president in modern American history, but would not go as far as to say that Trump himself is a fascist. She said her reason for this is that he isn't violent. But when you look at how he tries to dismantle free press, our institutions, separation of power, judicial independence, the right to protest, threatening to jail dissenters, positioning himself as a strong man, I have the answers, I can fix everything without me, the country will collapse, and does condone and incite violence in his rallies and online and has militarized the police, are you worried that our nation is inching toward fascism? It is. Donald Trump a fascist? Well, I think the reason Madeline was careful is because when she wrote the book, some of what we're seeing now had not yet occurred. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing now is the encouragement of violence. You know, it's one thing to say in a rally, you know, I'm going to punch you in the nose. I mean, that's kind of, you know, unbecoming and a president shouldn't say it. But it's another thing to encourage armed men Mm -hmm. Uh, to take over state capitals, to refuse lawful orders by governors and mayors, to send in the military uh, to the park across the street from the White House, as we've been discussing, to clear it with tear gas and Mm -hmm. force. So I do think that there is now a lot more evidence of his willingness to uh, deploy either violence or the force of violence. And I think we have to wait to see what happens in the election because this election will tell the story. It's clear that he wants to do everything he can to stay in power. Mm -hmm. He's trying to discredit and delegitimize the election. 
He's trying to really rev up his supporters so that they don't believe the outcome of the election. Mm -hmm. He is warning darkly of, you know, violence if uh, he doesn't win. So he's right on the brink. uh, And much of his behavior and much of what his government is doing has the hallmarks of fascist leadership. Right. But I think, you know, Madeline, who is a scholar and is careful would say there are, you know, there's a lot of evidence of him going farther and farther. We've got to be ready for it. We can't let it uh, happen. We can't let him derail the election. But I used to say when I traveled around as Secretary of State that there were a lot of countries that would have an election and then would never have another one. I used to say it was one and done. You know, they would get into power and then they would never leave. And that's what Many of us fear Trump is trying to set up and and what he's even talking about. So I don't know that we want to call him something yet. We want to educate the American people because sometimes labeling ends the conversation. We want Americans literally on all sides of the political divide to ask themselves, well, wait a minute, do I think it's a good idea that, you know, that the military is active on the streets of our country? Do I think it's a good idea that We have a president who is actually encouraging lawlessness when it comes to states trying to control the coronavirus, because that's a better way of of trying to get people to pay attention to how it could affect them as opposed to, you know, thinking it's some kind of, you know, theoretical uh, discussion. So, you know, given all of your experience and your persistent advocacy for human rights, do you think that all of these things that we've discussed affect the U.S.'s ability to make a case for democracy around the world? Like, how do we go around and sell democracy and tell everyone how amazing it is when we have this crisis at home? Are we still the leaders of good democracy or are we fundamentally hypocrites? Like, could you do the job you did before around this climate? And I guess, essentially, do you think America will continue to be the leader of the free world? Not under Donald Trump. But I do believe absolutely that one of Joe Biden's great strengths is his understanding of foreign policy, international relations, building alliances, working with people to get uh, important work done. So I couldn't be in a Trump administration and with a straight face, you know, claim that we were the leaders of democracy. But in a Biden administration, there's a lot of people like me. Yes. who would fan out across the world right. and reassert American leadership and roll up our sleeves and get to work immediately. So we're in this very uncomfortable, I hope, interregnum, because obviously I'm hoping that you know Trump is gone. Yes. Uh, because we can repair the damage of the last four years. I'm absolutely confident about that. It's not going to be easy because while we've been eating ourselves and dividing amongst ourselves and arguing with each other and watching a president abuse his office, other countries have gone forward with their own agendas. And, you know, that's their right. They get to do that. So we have an enormous amount of work to do, but it is repairable if we come back with a a very strong case for human rights and American leadership, get back into the climate agreement You know, get back into the World Health Organization, demonstrate that, you know, we want to be engaged in the world and we want to lead the world and we want to make tough decisions on behalf of democracy and the future. So 
all of that is what I'm hoping will happen because this election will, you know, retire Trump uh, and, yes. uh, you know, we'll have new leadership that I have a lot of confidence in. From your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Secretary Clinton, this has been such an incredible honor and just a real bucket list life goal. It still feels surreal. And we just want to thank you for your life of service, for leading with such dignity and grace, and for your immeasurable impact on human rights all around the world. As an immigrant who came to this country, whose family fled persecution, taking my two-year-old daughter with me to vote for you was one of the most inspiring days of my life. And when she held her sign at the Women's March, which read, never doubt you are valuable and powerful and deserving of every opportunity in the world, I knew how much your words would guide these future generations and how much hope and determination your story would inspire in little girls all over the world, like my daughters and us too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you both. Thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for being such strong voices for human rights and the and really the right kind of government and country that we want together. I, I'm so grateful to the, both of you. And I hope we'll get to see each other in person sometime in the future. <laughs> I know. And your podcast, You and Me with Hillary Clinton, is out now and we are already subscribed. Thank you. Thank you. Well, blessings. Stay to you safe. Both. Stay safe and healthy. Take Thank care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Like, we come back. <laughs> oh my God. Now, what do we do with our lives? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We hope we've inspired you to chase your passions and to dissent a little more often. Please continue following us on Instagram for more interviews that haven't aired, behind the scenes, bloopers, and really helpful resources. And please continue sharing these episodes with others. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review. And make sure to vote. <laughs> Lots of love from Deb and MD. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell. <laughs>